really special people, I'll tell you. In Presbyterianism, we call them the select of the elect. You're, you're the cream of the crop. <laughs> Hopefully that's not recorded. I don't mean to offend anybody. <laughs> but the truth it, is it, the truth. It's okay. It was recorded. That's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Well, we want to reward the punctual in our church. Uh, and, and you all are punctual, and I commend you for that. And, of course, I am delighted that we're having this seminar. And the reason that I'm so excited about it is because I went... I attended an outstanding public high school. And I loved my world cultures and American history courses. And I attended a top flight university, the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I got a, an outstanding education in the liberal arts. And I took history courses. But I must tell you, I don't think I ever heard any reference at all to the influence of faith in the founding of our nation. So what should I conclude from that? What I should conclude is that issues of faith were irrelevant, were non-issues in the founding of America. Uh, so our, our lecturer today is going to help me understand things as they were more clearly in the founding of our nation. The other little anecdote, Peter, if you don't mind, that I'd like to tell before you come up is that several years ago, the great Harvard historian named Samuel P. Huntington, who I believe his family was named, uh, named the town of Huntington here on Long Island, Samuel P. Huntington was on C-SPAN, with Brian Lamb in one of these great interviews that he does. And I tuned in because I've long been a fan of Samuel P. Huntington's writings. Now, Samuel P. Huntington actually is a classic Harvard liberal. And yet, he understands the flow and dynamics of world cultures. And so I wanted to hear him speak. And, in, and it was a two-hour conversation. And in the middle of this conversation the great Samuel P. Huntington, who said, who, who Brian Lamb asked him, he said, you are surprisingly conservative on certain cultural issues in America, and your colleagues have taken you to task for that. And he said, it is interesting. You know, I voted for John Kerry, he said, and I, and I, um, and he went on to establish his liberal credentials but he says, I do fear for the future of America. And Brian Lamb said, why would you say that? And he said, because America is a Protestant nation founded with powerful Protestant principles. And I almost fell off my chair. And he said, the dilution of the Protestant ethos in the United States of America is amazing to behold. He wasn't saying positive or negative. He was just saying that the evaporation of the Protestant heritage and ethos in the United <clears throat> States was amazing to behold. And it is interesting, again, no commentary pro or con, how many Protestants sit today on the United States Supreme Court? Do you know? Zero. 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 Let alone Bible-believing evangelical Protestants. Now, a lot of very thoughtful Roman Catholics, even conservative thoughtful Roman Catholics, sit on the high courts, but zero. That's something that I, I would guess the framers of the Constitution uh, would not have envisioned. So isn't that an interesting anecdotal piece from Samuel P. Huntington? I, I, I was uh, quite taken by that. Well, our guest today is Dr. Peter Lilbach, the professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary and the president of the seminary. And he has written a book entitled Sacred Fire, George Washington's Sacred Fire. And this book has sold several hundred thousand copies. And it is a 
It is a carefully researched study on the life and faith of George Washington. And um, one of you will walk out of here today with a signed copy of the book. At the end of the time, we'll pick a number between 1 and 20. I'll have it written down, and whoever picked that number is going to get the book that you were here. So this is going to get them to stay to the end of your lecture today, Peter. And so I'm going to open us with a word of prayer, and then without further ado, Peter, we're going to turn it over to you. Our Father in heaven, how grateful we are uh, to live in this place and this time. You have appointed us for this place and this time, but the many blessings of living in the United States of America are ours. And while, Lord, we know the United States of America is not the kingdom of God, and we love your kingdom of God, we are grateful to live here, to live where there is, on paper anyway, the rule of law, the protection of the minority, the freedom to speak our hearts and minds, the freedom to worship according to the dictates of our conscience, the freedom to write in the press what we want to say. We pray, Lord, we would understand how these virtues, these, these virtuous ideals, were woven into the fabric of our nation. Even the principled pluralism that allows for religious objection was written into the fabric of our nation. For this, O oh Lord, we are grateful. We pray we would have insight now from Peter as he comes and speaks to us. Thank you for each person here today. Illumine us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, John. It's a great privilege to be with you. As we get started, uh, this book that I mentioned back there, all the books are free, by the way, so take them. I'm not selling any of them. called Wall of Misconception. This actually comes out of my being, believe it or not, an expert testimony in a federal case that had to do with taking down the Ten Commandments in the Chester County Courthouse in Pennsylvania. And the, the, a pastor wrote to me and said, why in the world are you wasting your time on such trivial activities? And I was explaining in a newsletter. I was so taken by a one-page letter that I ended up writing 90 pages of a response because I had to answer it for myself. And I didn't realize, I'm sure he never read that letter, by the way, I, but I did send it to him, and I said, do you mind if I ever can use that? And he said, I don't care. Well, then, after Sacred Fire had come out and it was so well received, one of the gentlemen that I worked with said, you need to get another book out. People are interested in what you write. And I said, I don't have time to write another book. He said, you wrote a book to that guy, remember? So here it is. This is my letter turned into a book, and it's a... Uh, it shows us, uh, in a very practical way, the sea change that's occurred. Stop and ask yourself, why was it that a little less than a century ago, a uh, typical Pennsylvania county would have the Ten Commandments on its courthouse walls? Why would they do that? Could you imagine that happening today? It was normal. In the last century, we've seen a huge movement away from what we heard just a moment ago from John, from uh, Professor Huntington. It's fascinating. Uh, he, in his prayer, John, you said, uh, this is not the kingdom of God. And we have to admit that, right? But this is what's interesting. One of Samuel Huntington's prime prize students, a now retired professor from Swarthmore College, is a man named Dr. James Kurth. James Kurth is uh, a noted commentator in, in political science. And uh, I, I've known him through the years for many different reasons, one, one of the least of which is that he used to worship where I was a pastor. And I remember him saying, and he told me that this is true, so it's, I, I'm basing it on the authority of a, an accomplished scholar, but he said, do you know where we got the name America? I said, well, I happen to know that. That was named for Amerigo Vespucci. He is the man who came as one of the explorers, and he wrote back and said, we didn't make it to the Indies. This is a new world. He was the first one who recognized that none of the explanations up to that point were correct. 
And so there was a German cartographer who, I can't remember which order he was, but he was in the monastic Roman Catholic community, and he made a map of the New World such as it was known. And he used the, the phrase Terra Munda, New World. And he called it North America and South America. And he was basically naming these two massive continents for Amerigo Vespucci. Isn't it interesting we don't talk about North Colombia and South Colombia? Because while Columbus was the first one to cross, he said he'd made it to the Indies, and he didn't. But we still call the Aboriginal peoples Indians to this day. And so what's fascinating is that here we are as Americans. We are named for an explorer named Amerigo Vespucci. And so Dr. Kurth uh, said, you know, the name Amerigo now, Pete, it has an interesting history. He said, well, tell me about it. He said, Amerigo is actually an Italian derivative of a German name, Emmerich. Emmerich, Amerigo. And Emmerich is a contracted form of a phrase from German, which is Himmelreich. If you know German, it means the kingdom of heaven. So, John, I want you to know that America is the kingdom of heaven, but it is a corrupted kingdom of heaven, just like Himmelreich and Emmerich. So I have to correct your prayer. I'm sorry. I just, what can I say? <laughs> no, you were actually correct. This is not the kingdom of heaven, but if it's America, it's a corrupted version of the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Himmelreich, America. So what do we want to talk about? Well, since we talked about explorers, what I want to do is a very rapid survey of some of the salient points that will argue for the Christian heritage coming to this part of the world. I won't get into the Viking runestones that have been found in the north-central states that might argue that there actually were Christian stories brought by earlier Christian Vikings that came. That's very possible. I'm not an expert, but there's evidence that people appeal to from time to time. But let's begin with the noted information of the man who crossed the ocean blue in 1492. His name was Christopher Columbus. You remember he was traveling for Ferdinand and Isabella. They were the uh, great uniters of the Iberian Peninsula under the Spanish rule. Up to that point, there were various fiefdoms. And under Ferdinand and Isabella, there was basically a union of Spain. And they sent out this explorer uh, to find what he could find. He claimed he could make a route to the Indies going west. He thought he ultimately found it, but his name was Christopher. So the first thing we want to recognize is, what does Christopher mean? His name is actually Christos Pharaoh, okay? The bearer of Christ. That's literally what his name means. And uh, so he was a bearer of Christ in his very name. And when he wrote his account of what had happened, there are some remarkable statements that are, they are translated into English, you can actually get it in his account. And to summarize it, he said, no maps helped me in my journey. What guided me was the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It was through my reading of Isaiah the prophet that I became convinced that there must be other places that must be reached for the gospel of Christ. It says, the distant islands will hear. Now, he also went on using an Augustinian way of interpreting the possible return of Christ. And by the way, in the Gab Fest, let's talk about can we set dates for the end of the world. Columbus was motivated in part because he thought the end of the world had to come at a certain time based upon the Augustinian prophecy. And he also said, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to have evangelism that brings Jerusalem back to the faith, and it's now in Muslim hands, because it says Jerusalem will be converted. And to do that, we're going to need lots of money to send out missionaries, so we've got to find gold. And these prophecies say that there's gold in these islands that will be brought in, and that's how we're going to do it. And you never hear any of these stories taught when you hear about Christopher Clump, but they're all part of his writings. It's all there. He was looking for gold, he was looking for God, and he's looking for the Indies. All of them were motivations in his heart. And so he thought he'd achieved it. And of course, looking for gold was a big part of the, why there was that movement of all of Spain to come. 
I don't know how much gold they ultimately found, but they found one of the richest silver mines ever recorded in history in, at the Rio de Plata, right there in uh, Uruguay, south of Brazil. You go up the river and you get up to several hundred miles to a mountain where the vein of silver was probably as high as this roof for several meters. That's what made Spain such an extraordinary wealthy country. And it's what made the milled Spanish dollar the basis of currency in Europe. Hard to believe it, but Seville was the New York of Europe at that time because of all the silver coming, because of Columbus. All right, so all of these stories back there, but in his journal, here's what he says. The Holy Spirit inspired me. I was reading Isaiah, and I want you to know that we should not be afraid to undertake any mission for our Savior because the Lord will sustain us in our work. And he actually applies his biblical faith as a devout Roman Catholic to the task of the challenges of the day. So it's no surprise that a form of Christianity came along with the settlers. But as you know, the Roman Catholic variety of Christianity especially took root in the South to this day. South America is especially within the orbit of Roman Catholicism. As the exploration to the New World came, and to the north, there were, of course, the French up into Canada and in parts of even where we have our original states here. But the Protestants got their foothold. And as you know, the original 13 colonies, by and large, were settled by Englishmen. Did the English have a faith? Of course. It was the Anglican faith. It was the Protestant faith. And the Protestants came, and every one of the charters made it very clear that one of the tasks of the new colonies, whether it was up in New England, in this area in New York, or down in the south like Charleston, or the first one, Jamestown, Virginia, they were to bring the gospel to reach the unreached people. It's all in the charters. So there was a Christian faith. How devout it could be, we could debate. But the first thing that we want to do to set our story, the founding of America, is to realize there was no divorce between government, commerce, and religion in the exploration and the colonization of the New World. They went hand in hand. Christianity was not viewed as somehow you, something you can't talk about. When we talk about history in the public setting today, as John was saying earlier, often you'll hear no comment about people's faith. And the only time it will come up is when there are atrocities of some sort that need to be blamed. And then we say, well, it's because of religion. That is the typical model of how we hear it. So what I want to do now is to try to go back and look at this colonial era and bring us up to the birth of our country with the Constitution and ask the question, did faith play any direct and significant role? The first thing I've noted is that the charters were very consciously connected with the advancement of the Christian faith. Uh, whether we are at the Plymouth Rock or we are with the Anglicans and the uh, settlement of Jamestown, or William Penn in Philadelphia, the Christian religion is very clear. Let me just focus in on William Penn. I'm from Philadelphia. So uh, when you come to Oyster Bay, you expect to have oysters. So that's what I did last night. I said, you know, if you're going to name for it, show me if you got them. And I had fresh oysters last night. So John showed that it could live up to its name. When you come to Philadelphia, hopefully we live up to our name, but we probably don't. But let's just start right here. Okay. As probably most of you know, just like Christopheros, two Greek names that come together into one name, Philadelphia is two Greek words that come into one name. Okay. Phila is, we get the word philosophy, philanthropy. Okay. It means love. The idea of philos is love. The second part, Adelphia, it comes from the Greek word brother, Adelphos. And this city actually is found in the book of Revelation. If you look at Revelation, I believe it's chapter 3, you'll find the, the letter that was written by the risen Christ to the church in Philadelphia. As a child, I remember reading that and saying, how come New York City got overlooked? And not Cleveland, and Philadelphia. I'd never been to Philly. It must be an incredible. I didn't know any better. And then years later, I, I learned that Philadelphia in Pennsylvania was really named for a Philadelphia 
and, and the Middle East. And so we need to know that story to understand this story. As you know, when there is a royal uh, tradition, the firstborn, the law of primogeniture, says the firstborn gets the crown. And so one of the great risks of the firstborn is his next younger brother. Because if the firstborn somehow kicks the bucket, guess who takes over? By the laws of primogeniture succession. Well, he's the secondborn, so he's got the shot. So some of the really ruthless types of rulers, like Herod and others, start killing their own family off to protect themselves. Well, there was a ruler who had a younger brother who was so loyal, so protective of his older brother, that he wanted to tell the world how he admired his younger brother. And so he actually funded the establishment of a city called Brother's Love to honor this younger brother. And so Philadelphia, the first Philadelphia in Asia Minor, or let's say in the Middle East, is actually named before this particular uh, king. When William Penn came on the scene, he had been trained in Reformed theology at Oxford University, when John Locke was there. He got kicked out of Oxford for being too puritanical when Charles II came back to power. His father, who was loyal to the crown, had a great interest in the crown because the crown owed him a lot of money and he wanted to get paid. He sent his son off to France so he would get a little bit more polish and wouldn't be so puritanical in the high pomp and circumstances of France. And he actually studied at a Reformed theologian school at a place called Samur on the Loire River, and he was stayed in the home of a man named Moses Amiro. So if you're a theologian, you know Amiro is the father of four-point Calvinism. But I digress. But what do you expect from a historian theologian? Okay, He's talking to people on a Saturday afternoon. I, can, I can't believe it. I'm just going <laughs> to tell you what I feel like. Okay, So at any rate, he imbibed some Reformed theology. And you might actually say Quakers are Puritans who've gone overboard. If you really think about it, they believe you should be biblical, you should have preaching, you should separate from the world, all the kind of things. But they went so far that the preaching had to be done on the street corner, not in the church. You, on the inside, you preach through the Holy Spirit. Communion, on the inside, by the Spirit. Baptism, on the inside. I want you to know if you go to a Quaker meeting house, you never hear a bad sermon. The fact is there are no sermons. That's the point. Okay? So William Penn was converted to Quakerism. How? By a street preacher. Imagine him coming home, having been kicked out of Oxford, having gone to France. Now he's back home, and he comes home and says, Dad, guess what? I've decided to become a Quaker minister. That would be like the president of Westminster having a son saying, I'm going to become the president of the Atheist Society. It's very painful. He kicked him out of his house again, said, I never come back. And William Penn, having been trained in law, having been trained in theology, now a street preacher, uh, all sorts of interesting things, but he finally was restored to his father. He became the heir of this vast debt. He went to Charles II and said, look, you have a cash flow problem, give me land. Let me write the laws and we'll call it even. And it happened. And so Pennsylvania, all 300 plus miles through the woods and the mountains was his backyard. And when he set up his place, he found a, a peninsula of land between two rivers that he said, this is where I'm gonna set my capital city and I'm going to name it Philadelphia. It's going to be a place where brothers love each other. It doesn't matter what your beliefs are, whatever your convictions are, you are going to be welcome here, and we are going to let you practice it as long as you protect the civil rights of your neighbor. On the cover of his book of defending his concept, he wrote this verse. I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but can anybody quote it by just the reference? We won't call on Bill Shishko here or uh, John Yenchko. Okay. The Jeopardy clock is ticking here. It's do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. We all know the verse. We don't remember the reference. It is 
the verse in which William Penn said, this is going to create my city. What is religious liberty? William Penn said, I didn't like it when the Anglicans put me in the Tower of London because of my faith. So I'm not going to put anybody in jail when they come to my city. We're going to love each other as brothers. The liberty I want for myself, I must give to others. This is a golden rule applied to the public square. Well, what do we call that when we say we're, we have the freedom to practice your religion? We say those are the first of our First Amendment liberties. Guess where that comes from historically? From Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, applied by a minister from the Quaker faith who was trained in Reformed theology. His name was William Penn. It's fascinating. That's a hit. I'll tell you, you will never hear any place what I've just told you. That is totally an unknown story now. But it's absolute, I've established every fact. I can go right to the sources and show you the chain of succession. And so when I bring people to Philadelphia, I say this city was birthed by a minister who believed in Jesus, who said the golden rule must be applied to the public square. The First Amendment is not a product of secular, humanist, anti-religious thinking. And that's what you will hear. It is utterly false. It was created by a man who was convinced that the liberty that he wanted for himself must be given to others because that was what Jesus taught. And he found it in the Bible. And he called this city after a biblical name. His prayer, by God's grace, is still preserved in a bronze plaque in City Hall. He says, O Philadelphia, what pain I've gone through for you that thou mayest preserve the persecution and trouble and trial that will come upon you. He's basically paraphrasing, uh, paraphrasing Revelation 3. Perhaps that was the Revolutionary War. I don't know. But he was praying for what he believed would come on his city based upon that language. Okay, why do I start there? Religious liberty and its large scale is Philadelphia and a smaller scale by Roger Williams in Rhode Island the Plymouth, uh, at Providence Plantation. What you need to understand, he too is a minister. He was uh, struggling with the people in Massachusetts. He left, and so he went there and now what I think is significant is that he did it on a small scale, but he too was a clergyman. The two experiments in religious liberty were done by ministers of the gospel. Now when William Penn established his, his charter of privileges in 1701, it begins and ends with a statement, no one can be truly free unless they're free in conscience. We will never molest anyone for their faith in our city. And he went on to say, however, it is our belief that our city should be governed by Christians. Isn't that interesting? Philadelphia, the freest city on the continent, still believed that Christians should be in government. Did you know it would still be over a century plus from that date before an atheist could be allowed to give testimony in a court of law? Stop and think about that. Why was that? Because one of the requirements that you had to do, and guess what, you still do it today, you put your hand on the Bible, say, do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Well, the argument was no atheist could do that with any integrity, because he didn't believe he'd ever be held accountable. So he was deemed an inadequate testimony. I guarantee you, you won't hear that in public schools very often either. Why? Because we're basically teaching a form of secular Unbelief, materialism, or atheism, whatever you want to call it, is the practice, even if it's not the explicit view. What I want to ask the question is, uh, why was Christianity so important? Because he believed that government by Christians would be the only sure protection for religious liberty. So at the moment that there are no longer people who are willing to love people for their own right, these rights are going to be eroded. We need Christians in place because they believe that human beings are worthy of respect regardless of what they believe. Now, could that be Samuel Huntington's point? Once you lose the Protestant principles, what's going to happen? Well, at their best, these Protestant principles say you have a right, you have conscience, you have protections. Well, do we really believe? Okay. Right, so the, can culture preserve it? Now let me speed up very quickly, and I'm going to give you several examples, but I wanted to set the stage 
What really happens now to begin to create, if you will, what we could call a Christian, what Francis Schaeffer used to call a Christian consensus in America. This is a phrase that not everybody likes. I don't say there was a Christian America. To have a Christian America, you would have to have a constitution that says Jesus Christ is the head of our country. That never existed in America. It never did. And so when you argue for a Christian America, it can't be defended. But to argue that Christianity deeply influenced America, that can be totally defended. And so, again, in the debate, if you can identify the two, you can criticize one and think you can throw out the other. That's a mistake. We need to distinguish the two and admit there's no Christian America. But was there what I would call a Christian influence in America? Okay. We mentioned the colonial charters. Clearly, each in their own way had a reference to the concern to evangelize. They actually had many had established churches. Pennsylvania never did. But into this mix came along a person by the name of George Whitfield. As you know, in the first great awakening, George Whitfield was an extraordinarily powerful uh, preacher. According to Benjamin Franklin in his autobiography, he said, who, by the way, he was his treasurer. Benjamin Franklin was the treasurer for George Whitfield's evangelistic ministries. In one of his letters, he actually says to George, what do you think if you and I become missionaries to western Pennsylvania and bring some religion there? They desperately need it. And he was not joking. This was a serious proposal. Okay, So he was the treasurer. And uh, he, as he was dealing in, in his work, one day he was listening to George Whitfield's preaching, and uh, he said to himself, you know, I'm not going to give anything to his orphanage ministry. I, I just can't afford to give any. And as he heard him preach, his heart began to melt, and he said, okay, I'll put the copper coins in when the offering plate comes by. And he listened for another several minutes, and he said, okay, I'll put in the silver coins too. And then finally, when George Whitfield came to his great oratorical flourish at the end and compelling people, he said, all right, I'll put in the gold too. And he determined then and there he never again would bring his purse to another George Whitfield <laughs> sermon. Very practical man, Benjamin Franklin. But he loved this guy, his preaching. And so one of the things that he decided to do was actually to figure out how far could a person hear his voice because George Whitfield apparently has had one of the greatest voices that ever walked this earth. He had a powerful voice. And so as he heard him preaching, he went out as far as he possibly could hear his voice. And then he walked around the blocks. George Whit Whitfield's voice was heard within the sphere. And then he sat down and figured out the space. Then he figured out how many people would, could fit into that space. And he calculated that 30,000 people could hear George Whitfield's voice. This is totally unamplified. Now, some of you are straining to hear my voice right now, and it is amplified. This man had a voice that shook buildings as though it were the voice of heaven itself. Very powerful. His gift was so great that, starting in England, he began to preach, and the churches could not contain the crowds that came. But the law in England said, as part of the control of the Quakers and the nonconformists and others, they had two controls. One, you have to have a license to preach. There was no problem for George Whitfield. He was an Anglican. He had a license to preach. But you also had to preach within the boundaries of a church building. Remember, William Penn was converted by a street preacher who was breaking the law. And so you have to be inside. George Whitfield had so many people that they were breaking into the windows. You know, the roof didn't quite get opened up, but it's almost like the Jesus story where the man is let down from the roof. They wanted to hear so badly. And so he went out in the fields and started to preach. And they said, you can't do this. And he had to make a decision. He said, I am called to preach by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, not by the Bishop of London. And he preached in the streets. And he preached to tens and twenties of thousands of people, many times a week sometimes. And they couldn't touch him because there would have been such an explosion of protest that they dare not do anything. Well, so George Whitfield did something. First of all, 
He demonstrated there was an authority higher than the, the bishop of the church. That's the gospel. When he came to America, uh, they, there were open fields and he began to preach and they said you could actually see where George Whitfield was going to be preaching by seeing the dust clouds on the horizon. So many people were traveling on their horses and buggies to go. He said, that's where Whitfield's preaching. Look, you could see the dust cloud. And the people would gather and he would preach. And what happened is that he went all the way from north to south. His orphanage was in Georgia. And he would collect money. He'd preach the gospel. He would call on people to be born again, to be regenerate. Many say he really created the evangelical movement as we know it. You must be born again. You need a work of grace. Your heart needs to be changed by faith. It's not enough to be a member of a church and baptized. You need to have a work of the Holy Spirit. And people were extraordinarily impacted. Lives were changed by the thousands. And another thing began to happen. Not only did he demonstrate that the gospel was over the church, but also he demonstrated the fact that your colonial connection is not nearly as deep as your spiritual connection. And there have been scholars who have argued deeply through history that one of the links that began to make the United Colonies in America possible, because remember, they all had different backgrounds, different principles, different uh, crops, different charters, they were competitors. They, they were basically warring states in many cases. Why did they connect? Because they had begun to have a spiritual experience that transcended politics, that transcended state boundaries. And George Whitfield actually created, if you will, not Episcopalians and Presbyterians and Methodists, even though he was a Methodist Episcopal, he was creating born-again Christians. And it created a new form of unity that crossed boundaries. So the beginning of what we might say is the extraordinary, unexpected uniting of all these disparate colonies that had many competing interests had begun through a spiritual renewal whose impact still is being felt in America to this day. When someone says to you, I am an evangelical, they are putting a footnote down to George Whitfield. He created the evangelical movement by saying, I don't care where you come from, you must be born again. Now that made a lot of enemies. There were theologians that said, what are you doing undermining our sacraments, our church connections? And we can see the debate is a legitimate question. But so, in a certain way, George Whitfield created some of the movement and he was, if anything, first a Christian. The Christian influence of America. You cannot understand the revolutionary era unless you understand the Great Awakening and George Whitfield's influence. He died right up here in New England, I think at Newburyport, Connecticut, is where he was buried. Now, as you know your history, the colonies now have been planted, there are Christian influences, the charters talk about Christianity, uh, they're not explicitly uh, biblical Christians by any stretch of the imagination, but they're Christian aware. George Whitfield calls for revival and renewal, and there's an extraordinary breaking out. And what happens now is that the French decide to start claiming some of the territory claimed by the English. And that is, again, goes to Pennsylvania, at that time viewed as part of Virginia. And a young man by the name of George Washington was commissioned by the governor of Virginia to go to the far reaches because there was word that somewhere near what we would call today Erie, Pennsylvania, there were starting to be French settlements encroaching on British lands. And he was sent to say, back off and get out. That's a whole story I'd love to tell you, but I can't tell you about it. But the French and Indian War takes place. It's during this war where that great story occurs where every officer is killed or wounded under General Braddock except for George Washington. And uh, it's a terrible devastation. They can't drive the French out in this battle. Braddock is killed. Washington comes back. He becomes something as a hero, as the only officer that survived. And it's a remarkable story. You can read that if you want in Sacred Fire. There's a whole story. But what's the impact? 
Well, the French and Indian War happens. It has to be settled, and the settlement makes uh, several decisions, one of which it says that Canada to the north in Quebec will go back to Roman Catholicism. Everything that is on the eastern side of the Mississippi is going to go in the, what we say America today is going to go to England. So up to that point, there was this disputed land from the Appalachians west. It's now all in the English hands. But as part of the deal with the French, they say the Roman Catholic religion can be in Quebec. So the Quebec Act happens. Now why does that matter? Because there are these Puritans in a place called Massachusetts, and at that time Maine was part of Massachusetts, that said, you know what? The Inquisition is still going on in parts of Roman Catholic Europe. And now the Roman Catholic Church has been reestablished in Montreal, in Quebec. And they are given full freedom to establish their government and their religion. And there was this fear that the Roman Catholics would launch an attack through the wilderness of Maine to destroy Massachusetts. You say, Pete, come on, you're just trying to make any argument you can to show that Christian issues are at work here. This is the Protestant Reformation now on American soil. This was a tough time in history where Protestants and Catholics literally were fighting. Well, here's my argument. You know what the first act of the Continental Congress was before the Revolutionary War? The invasion of Canada. You know who led the invasion of Canada? a young officer by the name of Benedict Arnold, who happened to be a hero, not yet a traitor. And you know what their first step was as the New England troops gathered together to get ready to go to invade Quebec to neutralize Roman Catholic assaults against Protestant New England, as they called themselves. Read the charter. You know what it was? These are people that were totally opposed to holy relics. They're Puritans. They didn't have... They weren't collecting bones of the saints and martyrs to put in their communion table like our Roman Catholic friends do. They don't have reliquaries. But they decided they really needed to have some special blessing. And so they went to the crypt of George Whitfield. They opened up the lid. And they found, there, there he was. He hadn't been resurrected yet. And they found his preaching collar and cuffs. And they said, we need to have the Lord's blessing on us as we go into battle. And so they took those off and they cut them up into little pieces and every man carried a little bit of Whitfield with them into the invasion of Canada. And I think their Puritanism might have been reestablished because they didn't win that invasion. <laughs> but what am I trying to get at here? The secularism and the anti-religious sentiments that are so deep in our thinking today it was unthinkable at that moment in time. They were doing things that today we say, I can't imagine. It's all documented. It's all true. And so we can see that at this point, there was this great awakening. There was this George Whitfield died, uh, what was it, in the 1750s or something? I forgot the exact date. But now we are at the beginning of the American Revolution. Another thing that happened is that the preachers that had been spawned by the First Great Awakening, they were revivalists in the uh, George Whitfieldian sense, going around and preaching. Well, these people were called by the Continental Congress and said, well, you know, the freedom that you love must be defended. We're going to ask you now to take your gospel preaching skills and go from town to hamlet and preach the importance of standing for the new American cause. Liberty is on the line. The king that we are resisting, he has already established the Inquisition in Quebec. It's going to happen. He's going to take away your freedom and establish the Anglican Church, and you know the Anglicans persecuted Protestants, including the Puritan forebears who came to America for religious liberty. And so preachers were harnessed to go out and preach. Did you know that the Continental Congress, you can go back to the record of the Continental Congress, there's actually a sermon that was actually crafted by Congress. And it's written in such a way that it can be sent to every church in America and read. And it's defending the cause of liberty 
in the name of, of the Christian faith. That's the, that's the birth of, this is the group that created the United States, okay? So Christianity is in the air. It's part of their belief, George Whitfield. And when the war is getting ready to really break out in New England, you remember the Stamp Act. By the way, the 250th anniversary of the Stamp Act, which was a huge deal in Boston and New York. You two cities right around here are the ones that really were in the heart of it. The 250th anniversary will be 2015. You ought to plan to do something about it. So let me plant that seed for you. Got a little time to get ready for it. Okay. The Sons of Liberty, as they were dealing with this issue, the Stamp Act, uh, part of the argument was, well, the king has every right to give us this law to tax if he wants. He's the king. They said, yes, but his taxation is going to destroy our ability to print newspapers. It's going to destroy our ability to do contracts. It's going to restrict our ability to share an alternate view to the crown. It will take away our religious and civil liberties. This was the argument. And so they were talking about it, and there was a tax stamp tax man in Philadelphia by the name of John Hughes. And he was trying to encourage people to support the King's Act when the law was established. And you know what he did? He went to some Presbyterians and said, you're going to have to support this. This is your biblical duty. And the Presbyterians coined the slogan, according to John Hughes, that was heard throughout the American Revolution. Here, sir, we have no king but King Jesus. You know, that was the motto of the Sons of Liberty. No king here but King Jesus. And stamp collector John Hughes writes back and says, these people are intending to declare their independence. They're already saying they won't have the king. Okay, said, whether you like it or not, by Presbyterians first. Do with it what you will. Okay? Okay, the Stamp Act, okay, here's the history. It was to become effective if I remember correctly, on November 1st of uh, 1765. And it basically said, as a way of helping to pay for the army and uh, military activity in the French and Indian War, that they said, we're going to have to levy a tax that everybody pays for. So every piece of paper and uh, dice, playing cards, it didn't matter, had to have a stamp on it from the government. And this was going to cost a penny, a half a penny, a shilling. It depended on, so it touched everything. Newspapers, it touched uh, legal documents and wills. It touched the preacher's books, the pamphlets, the tracts that were people having, plus the gambler's things, plus the sea captain's things, plus the, if you had a bill of lading and you're doing business, it touched everything. And it roused everybody because they believed that their, co their colonial charters said that no one has the right to tax the colonies except their own representatives. And this was passed by the parliament in England where there were no American representatives. They said this is not just a money issue, which is a big money issue. It's a constitutional issue. And they actually went back and appealed to the Magna Carta that had similar principles. And they said taxation must be by representation. So you've heard that phrase. No, Taxation without representation. The issue wasn't the money, although the money was a big issue. It was the fact that Parliament said, we don't care what your charters say, this is what we're going to do. They cared about their Constitution. By the way, do we care about our Constitution today? Just a nice question. If someone runs roughshod over it, do we care? If you don't have a Constitution, you may not have liberty for long. That's what they believed. Okay? They were taking... They believed that the power to tax was the power to destroy. And they said, we're going to see newspapers and businesses going out of uh, function because we're going to be bankrupt by paying these taxes that we can't afford to pay that are unjust to start with. So there was an economics argument. So it's interesting here, as you try to explain the birth of America, you can give a good Marxist interpretation so it was all about money. Well, there's money involved. We can also say there's an intellectual ideological argument. It was about the Constitution. But you can also say there's a religious argument. It's all about Protestants and Catholics making sure that consciences are protected. Guess what? History typically is multi-causal, and any reductionism to one cause is inadequate. I'll be honest. And that's one of my concerns about trying to teach American history and pretending that religion never existed. You're stripping those people of half of who they were, and you have a truncated view of reality. So. 
could go on with that, but we'll hold, keep going. Okay? So the Sons of Liberty, no king but King Jesus. Finally, they come together for the very first time. It's an interesting opportunity. It's in the year uh, 1774. They decide to meet in Philadelphia because it's right there in the middle of all the colonies. And as they gather together, they realize they can't meet in the Pennsylvania State House because the Penn family owns it. They're all loyal to the crown. But they're meeting together to discuss what are we going to do. And so they meet at a place called Carpenter's Hall. It was a private Carpenter's Guild Hall. Beautiful building. You can still go there to, to, to this day. And they all gather together. George Washington is there. Uh, Samuel Adams is there. John Adams is there, along with some other people, not as well known, signers of the Declaration in the future. And they all sit down and they say, well, how do we get started? You know, this is kind of a big deal. And so someone says, I think we ought to open in prayer. And the first debate in prayer in America happens at our very first meeting. And no one said, we can't pray because it will be an establishment of religion. They said, we can't pray because Methodists don't pray with Lutherans. And Baptists don't pray with Quakers. And Roman Catholics might be sneaking in here with their blasphemies. We can't have prayer. And I love Sam Adams. You know, he's a, more than just an icon for a delicious malt beverage. Okay? <laughs> I just want you to be sure of that. Uh, he was there, and he was from Boston. And he said, I want you to know, I am no bigot. I can be led in prayer by any man who loves his God and loves his country. Pretty good argument. Now, this is the stroke of genius. And he said, I hear there is just such a man over at Christ Church, just a few blocks from here. Why don't we have him come and lead us in prayer? Why was that so brilliant? Because he was a Congregationalist. The man he's speaking of was an Anglican. And just a few years before, the Congregationalist had chopped off the head of the King of England and said his church was apostate. And he said, on the, in the public square, we should be able to come together and pray for our country. And that act of authentic political ecumenism, whether you think it was spiritually good or not, is what created the consensus that created the first expression of what we can call Americanism. It said, you know what, we have deep convictions, but when we come together in the commonwealth, we can work together in spite of our religious differences. And so the first act of our Congress and the Continental Congress was to pray. And the prayer has been preserved by Jacob Duchesne. And uh, it's, we're told uh, Sam Adams was there, Washington was there, John Adams. John, who is this extraordinary letter writer with his wife, Abigail, remember who said, don't forget the ladies when you deal with liberty? Okay. There's a, an extraordinary communication where he describes all that was going on in that prayer meeting. It was really extraordinary. America was born in prayer. It's all preserved, all documented, just by those who were there as eyewitnesses. So why would the Continental Congress decide if we get together to talk about the issues with the crown, we ought to pray? Have you ever been to a secular humanist meeting where they bow in prayer before they do business? This is, this is an expression of this Christian consensus that was at work. It was different traditions. They were praying. Okay, so as we continue to go along, we know that finally, in uh, 1776, the Second Continental Congress will have to meet because of all of the uh, struggles in Boston, the Boston Tea Party and the intolerable or coercive acts and the, all of the problems. There's now been uh, the bloodshed that's been at Concord and Lexington, and they meet together. And so we have this man named Thomas Jefferson. Okay, we all know his name. And I just want to make a couple observations here. He's the penman for the first version of the Declaration of Independence. We all know this, okay? Now, what's interesting is that I've often thought, I wonder what would have happened if Thomas Jefferson came, having been sent for a few weeks to write this document, and... Uh, he has it to Congress, and he says, now listen, you're going to have to pass it before you know what's in it. You think it would have passed? I don't think so. 
You know, Thomas Jefferson listened to the debate over his document. He sat in silence, figuring I should not speak to defend my own work. But by the time it was done, he felt it was shredded and mutilated because there were at least 88 amendments to his document. So you need to realize that while he is the original author, it was really the work of the Continental Congress by the time it was done. We have his original version, and you can see the final version. You can actually see the changes, but we don't know who made which motions because that was not preserved. So that's something we'll never know. But I like to think, I can't prove this, but the only minister who was present for the uh, debate on the Declaration and signed it is a man named John Witherspoon, a direct lineal descendant of John Knox in Scotland. He came from Scotland to America to become the president of what we call today Princeton University. It's the College of New Jersey at the time. And he was there, and uh, the sermon that he preached just before going to Congress was the dominion of providence over the affairs of man. And you know at the end of the declaration it says with the firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to one another our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. I have a feeling that he probably said uh, Mr. Jefferson's draft is quite fine, but I think we must recognize that we must depend on the great power of the Almighty God if we're going to succeed. I can't prove that. It does fit. But here's what I want you to see. Again, I'm trying to establish the fact. Was there a Christian influence? There are four references to deity in the Declaration of Independence. Let's review them quickly. The first one is that we are endowed by our Creator. We talked about a Christian worldview. Creation is one expression of how we look at the world. Okay, our Creator. He talks about the laws of nature and of nature's God. Now, what does that phrase mean? Well, if you go back to the legal commentaries of the time, like Blackstone and others, you discover that there was a belief that there's natural law that was put in place by the Creator. And then there is the law that God revealed, like the Ten Commandments. By the way, that's why the Ten Commandments appeared on courthouse laws, walls for years, right up until this debate it's still there, by the way. We won that in the appeals court. You can read about it in that book I gave you. But uh, what's fascinating is there's a recognition now that God is the source of law. He's the source of the material world and of human life. He's the source of law. And then it goes on to say, and for the rectitude of our intentions, we appeal to the supreme judge of the world. So there's some eschatology here. There's going to be a final judgment in history. And we're saying that what we're doing is not overt radical rebellion. Look at all the reasons why we finally have no recourse but to appeal to heaven. This is John Locke's theory of resistance. You must do all you can to obey and, and protect it. But finally, if your life, your liberty, and your property are being damaged, you have no other recourse than to appeal to heaven and take up arms because no one can take these from you. They're God-given. You have a right to protect them. It's not rebellion. It's defense of liberty. Okay? And then, of course, it concludes with the word, with the protection of divine providence. Now, listen to those four references. Creation, law-giving, judgment, and protection. Those are all really good Christian doctrines. They're all part of the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you want to find them, you'll find every one of those there. But there's this interesting observation that has been made. If you look at them carefully, okay, you say, who is a creator? Well, he's kind of like a founder, someone who's founding everything. All right, so you got founder. And then who is a lawgiver? Well, those are legislators. And then who is the executive of bringing things to pass, the providential keeper. Oh, that's the president, the executive branch. And then who's the one that judges at the end? Well, that's the judiciary. Isn't it fascinating that in this founding document, you actually have the vision of, of the founder who has three expressions of government. Well, does that sound like anything you've ever heard before? Founders that are giving us three branches of government? Well, what, what do these people believe? 
we are endowed by our Creator. We have the image of God built into us. And what God does, what do we do? But emulate that. There is a implied Christian. No, the name of Christ is not directly used to force the non-Trinitarian, which there were some, the Jewish person that were some, to force them to be Christians, to be citizens. It protected them. But I would ask you this question. If you are in a largely Christian era and you speak about the supreme judge of the world, who do you think that might be? Okay, let's ask a theologian, Bill. Who do you think that might be? Christ is the supreme judge of the world, according to the scriptures. Do you think that is a veiled or maybe a direct reference to their view that we are, in fact, recognizing for our diversity there's a transcendent Christian reality that we're taking place here. Okay. All right, so I'm just beginning to argue there's all of this influence. Now, I, wa- I can't begin to summarize uh, George Washington's faith, but George Washington is important because, after all, he was called the father of his country in his own lifetime. That's pretty extraordinary when you think about it. Already believed that there would be no country if you hadn't done what you had done. And uh, George Washington uh, made it very clear in several cases he considered himself a Christian. I'll ask you to just read my book. I could give you five hours of lecture on that. I don't have time. But one of my favorite, just one little factoid. I'll give you two. Uh, One is that he was writing to a friend before he ever was even in really visible uh, government. He had already served in in the French and Indian War. But a man wrote to him and said, you know, I'm really having a tough time financially. Would you be able to give me some cash? You know, can you spot me till Tuesday? And uh, Washington, uh, like so many people, was cash poor. There was money was hard to come by because of the laws that were put in place. You couldn't use bills of credit that was outlawed. That actually put uh, Samuel Adams' father out of business. He had a land-grant bank that was based on all kinds of paper promises. He said it's illegal. He lost everything. No wonder Samuel Adams had a little chip on his shoulder against the king. But uh, Washington had a hard time having hard currency because there just wasn't enough. You had to have hard currency from Europe to use in America, and if you didn't have it, you couldn't pay your bills. And so the, he wrote back a letter to this man, and he showed him his accounts, and he says, on my honor and the faith of a Christian, what I have just written to you is true. So what is he saying? I'm a man of honor, and if there's anything that Washington cared about was his honor. Through and through, he wanted to be respected as a man of integrity. That was passionately who he was. And it's utterly impossible that he could have said, on my honor and the faith of a Christian, all the while not being a Christian. It's the most absurd concatenation of ideas possible for his personality. But in a private letter, he said, look, what I'm telling you, I know I'm going to be held accountable before by the supreme judge of the world. This is true. I can't help you. Not that I don't care. I can't do it. So the Christian witness. Another good example of this is when uh, he is, he's writing his public statements uh, to his soldiers uh, and to the governors and others. His farewell address as the victorious general at the end of the war. He writes uh, to the now... Uh, newly independent governors. We had basically 13 independent countries that were leagued together in the Articles of Confederation. And he says, in a long letter, he says, I'm now praying for our country. I now make it my earnest prayer. That's a great line. I now make it my... And then he writes a whole paragraph of prayer. He signs this letter 13 times with his famous signature. You'd think he would know what was in it if he was signing it, right? And it basically says this that you would do justice, that you would love mercy. Okay, now wait a second. You're all biblical. That sounds like Micah 6, 8. You're exactly right. That you would do justice, that you'd love mercy. But what he says next, it sounds like he almost studied at Westminster Seminary because he preaches Christ from the Old Testament. In Micah 6, 8, it says, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. But he changes that to do justice, love mercy, and imitate the divine author of our blessed religion. 
Okay? And then he goes on to say that we must do that with our love, with our commitment to justice and peace. Without doing this, we can never be a happy nation. So here's his public statement. Governors, lead your states in such a way that your people will follow our religious founders' example. Without that, you cannot be happy. By the way, in that text, he is saying to walk humbly with your God is to walk with Christ, the divine author of our blessed religion. John, how are we doing on time? Tell us, essentially, what is in it, Okay. if you would. Just go through the table of contents. All right. And um, I, I also noted that your lecture from last night, Peter, is on page 42 yep. of the book. Yep. So for people who want to recover. But um, if you want to walk us through the okay. table of contents and tell us why you gave everyone a copy of this book. Okay. Well, actually, I was going to tonight turn everybody to this page. So you're right, you're planning ahead. So this is actually part of your notes for tonight. Everybody can have this book for free. You can write in it, take it, okay? But what it is is actually the summary of the, of the Christian worldview in comparison with the materialist worldview, showing that the same questions are answered, but how very differently they're answered. And those are the two views in front of us. In a very simple basis, what this book attempts to do is to argue that when Jefferson gave us his phrase, wall of separation between church and state, that that was never intended to separate God from government. That that is a misunderstanding, that's a misconception. And so I go through all of the different issues such as how does God fit in the public square? Well, obviously I've been talking a little bit about that historically, you know, founding era. Uh, the, you, then I go through the Pledge of Allegiance and how it reflects the worldview. The Ten Commandments on the courthouse. This was a case I actually participated in. What does the separation of church and state look like in the American context, historically conceived? What does it mean if you think, if you have any kind of religious expression, are you forcing people to believe something that is not their creed? How does religious liberty work in the context of saying, this is where we've come from, who we are, and this is why you can still be who you are, given what our heritage is. How does religious liberty work in it? And then I address the question briefly, what about tax dollars and faith-based ministries? Is it possible for the government to help faith-based ministries if they are doing a social good? How can that be possible? How does that fit? So that is an issue. Uh, can the gospel exist in any form in government dress. The government changes everything for its own purpose at the end of the day. So doesn't it automatically corrupt the gospel if there's any way in which we work together? And so I really get into the idea of what is the difference between the gospel and the culture that the gospel creates. Okay? There's, a, there's an important distinction. There is a culture that's created by the gospel that is not the gospel itself but the gospel's present creates benefits that bless many others. And that's part of the issue. And then finally, uh, I talk about other things, including Washington's constitutional precedents for understanding our First Amendment and other things and how we interpret them. Because remember, whatever Washington did as our first president established a precedent. And he did several things that have to do relationship of church and state with the Bible and religious activities, which if I had another hour, I'd love to